Hey everyone, I'm David Chalian, CNN's political director, and welcome to the CNN Political Briefing. This past Wednesday was the fourth Republican presidential primary debate, and there were only four candidates on the stage this time. Donald Trump, the frontrunner, again choosing not to participate. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie was one of those candidates participating, although it was unclear in the build-up to the debate if he would make the cut. But he did. I want you all to kind of picture in your minds Election Day. You'll all be heading to the polls to vote. And that's something that Donald Trump will not be able to do because he will be convicted of felonies before then and his right to vote will be taken away. And he's joining me today to talk about the issues discussed on that debate stage, as well as this moment in the campaign as the candidates prepare for voters to begin weighing in in just a few weeks. Governor Christie, thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, David. And I should put my full transparent Jersey bias front and center here as my home state. I think you were the governor of the greatest state in the country. So there you go. I definitely was. I definitely <laughs> was. Not. I was the governor and it is the greatest state in the nation. We are agreed on that. You have received quite a bit of praise for your debate performance this week down in Alabama. And I'm wondering if you think that debate somehow altered the trajectory of the race in some way, or if you've seen anything or your team briefed you on something, that something has shifted because of that debate? Well, what I think the debate did, David, was two things. I think, one, we had some pretty good momentum going into the debate, you know, increased poll numbers in New Hampshire, and, and we felt good about the crowds we were drawing, you know, right before Thanksgiving and then in the immediate aftermath of it. And I can tell you from being up here, you know, the last two days since the debate that we're feeling the same thing here even more. We are doing a college tour right now, and we had great turnout yesterday at three different college campuses, and uh, we'll do two more campuses today. So, you know, I just feel like what it's done is increase the momentum we were already feeling. And second, I just felt like with a smaller stage, it gave me an opportunity to be myself even a little bit more. You know, you just mentioned you were doing a college tour, and it just sparked a thought that recently, I don't know if you saw this, the Harvard Institute of Politics put out a youth poll looking at young Americans. And one of the big findings in this poll, Governor, was that young people seem less likely to vote in the 24 election than they were at this stage of the game four years ago. And I'm wondering, as you're going and visiting college campuses, are you finding this sort of cohort, this segment of the electorate apathetic or a little less engaged? Or are you seeing that it's hard to get them excited about the notion of an upcoming election? You know, I haven't so far, David. I, believe me, I saw a lot of emotion. And I think that I had a lot of students who were very interested in what I had to say and very opinionated. We had protesters at two of the three stops, and they were protesting me, but they were protesting about different issues. We had people protesting about the war in Israel. We had climate protesters. We had folks who were protesting because they don't like Henry Kissinger. So, you know, I, what I'm finding is maybe they're not excited about the election, but they're certainly motivated to express themselves about issues of the day. And I think that that's the candidate's job then to then translate that into involvement in the election, either by working for you 
or hopefully by voting for you. You had mentioned you got to be a bit more of yourself on the debate stage this week. And I thought one of those moments was when you came to Nikki Haley's defense. Obviously, you're running against her for the nomination, but you sort of stepped in at a moment, which you tell me, I don't know if that was something you had planned strategically in advance, knowing that she would get so much incoming on the debate stage or if that was just in the moment. But it was a striking moment. And then I I noted that after the debate and throughout the day yesterday on the campaign trail, you made clear, don't get the wrong idea here. I'm going to take Nikki Haley on pretty significantly here in New Hampshire. And so I'm wondering where you anticipate in these closing six weeks of the primary campaign, Governor, where you think you're going to differentiate yourself the most from Ambassador Haley before the New Hampshire voters? Well, let's go to the first part of your question. It was not planned at all. But look, when Vivek Ramaswamy essentially compared and denigrated Nikki Haley's intellect in comparison to his three-year-old son, I have to tell you, I just about had enough. And it really was a spontaneous reaction. You know, look, I'm married to a very powerful woman who spent 30 years on Wall Street in what at that time, when she started in the mid-1980s, was a real male-dominated business. And I was raised by a very strong mother who is still to this day the most important influence in my life. And it just bugs the hell out of me, David, when I see pompous, arrogant men who denigrate women and think that that's something they can get away with. And so it just was a spontaneous reaction on my part. And, you know, Nikki thanked me later on for having done it. And my reaction to her was during one of the commercial breaks was the same as as it would have been in any other circumstance. My view is that she's a good person. I've known her for 13 years. We've been friends, and I have respect for her. And I think that that's the way she deserves to be treated at all times. It doesn't mean, as I said yesterday, that I don't have significant disagreements with her. And the way that will manifest itself, I think, over time is in the next six, seven weeks, is that I fear that what Nikki tries to do at times is be all things to all people. And it concerns me that she's unwilling to take on Donald Trump that in many ways, I think the things she says empower him because she says things like, well, for some reason, drama and chaos seem to follow him wherever he goes. Well, you know, David, that's like the arsonist saying, for some reason, burning buildings seem to follow me wherever I go. You know, drama and chaos follows him because he creates it and he creates it because of the outrageousness of the things that he says and does, and the self-centeredness of the things that he says and does. That's an area where I'm sure we'll differentiate, because on that stage, David, on on Wednesday night, I was the only one still who was willing to take him on directly. Ron DeSantis was unwilling to even answer the question as to whether he was fit or unfit for office, even after both me and Elizabeth Vargas absolutely berated him about it. You went almost full Rubio on him in that moment. Well, I, I'd say, look, it's fear, David. Like the, the amazing thing to me is the fear that both Nikki and Ron have of saying anything that is directly critical of Donald Trump. They, they like to sideswipe at best. And sideswiping, and this comes from the 16 experience, sideswiping him will not get the job done. Jeb, Marco, myself, John Kasich, none of us took him head on directly in 2016. And as a result, he became the nominee. So from that experience, I'm not going to let that happen again willingly. 
and I think of the other thing where we've seen some real differentiation is on abortion. And while we're both pro-life and governed as pro-life governors, I've said quite clearly that I would not sign a national abortion ban because I really fought for years as a lawyer and a pro-life activist to return this decision to the states where I think constitutionally it belongs and return it to the people of those states. I thought that's where Nikki was, but then when she sat across from Bob Vanderplatz in Iowa in a much more conservative forum, she said she would sign a six-week abortion ban. And I think that's a real differentiation point as well in this respect, not just on the substance of the issue, but on the fact that you can't be one thing in Iowa and something different in New Hampshire. And that makes people think you're trying to be all things to all people. You had mentioned the the first part of differentiation, maybe what I'm paraphrasing you here, but sort of the Trump enabler aspect of it all. Obviously, preventing Donald Trump from becoming the Republican nominee and becoming president again seems to be a key piece of your rationale for running. Would you be running if Donald Trump was not running in this race? Hard to say, David. You know, I will tell you that the conversations that my wife and I had, we were enjoying ourselves in the private sector. As you know, I had a great gig on ABC and was able to keep my voice in the public debate in that way and, and was enjoying myself with my own small business. I don't know that I would have, but the conversations that my wife and I had, it was clear to both of us that no one was going to take him on. And having had the experience we had in 2016, it was really my wife who kept saying to me, if no one's going to take him on, you may have to do this. And, you know, so I don't know, David, whether we would have or not. I always wanted to be president and obviously still do, but whether I would have been motivated ultimately by just that without Donald Trump, it's very hard for me to answer that question. I don't know. That's fair and kind of begs my next question, which is, so do you anticipate at some point in this campaign, I know you said you're in this through the convention, but is there a time and a place where you do sort of an electoral calculus? And if you were to come to a conclusion that the goal of preventing him from becoming the nominee or the next president again is actually more likely to be achieved if you were to get out and throw your support elsewhere than it is if you were to remain in that race. Would you would you follow that kind of an electoral calculation if that became the determination that you made? My problem, David, with the question is that my analysis, which I've done already, is that given the state of this field, I don't think that's likely to happen because none of them are willing to take Trump on directly. And as a result, I think they're all either playing in some instances for some position in a potential Trump administration, or even more likely for positioning in 2028. And so I just don't think any of them will take the steps that are necessary to do what needs to be done to beat him. And so that's why I've said I'm staying in through the convention, because now having been on the trail with all these folks for the last six months, it's pretty clear to me that none of them will do it nor have the capacity or willingness to do it. And I think that that means none of them ultimately can beat Donald Trump. I think I'm the only one who can beat Donald Trump, David, because I'm the only one trying to beat Donald Trump. Hmm. You know, there's one big endorsement hanging out there in New Hampshire where you are this morning when you speak with me, Governor Chris Sununu. Uh, I am wondering how big of a deal you think his endorsement can be in this race and what are you doing to secure it? Well, look, I would love to have Chris's endorsement. We have known each other 
for 12 years, and I have great respect for him. And we have been probably the two loudest voices in our party from, you know, an accomplished official perspective against Donald Trump and being very direct about our belief that he doesn't have the capacity nor the moral fitness to be president again. So I would love to have Chris's help and endorsement in the primary. Also, though, David, have, as you know, been the object in two different presidential cycles of a lot of attention for my endorsement, both in 2012 and in 2016. And from those experiences, I am also dubious about what the real impact of an endorsement is. So I would like to have it more because of my philosophical and personal agreements that I have with Governor Sununu than for what I think it would practically bring to the race, because I always wonder about that. And I've heard Chris say that himself, that he wonders, too, about the practical effect of an endorsement. But I'd like to have it, and uh, I would like to have his support, because I'd love to have him as a compatriot on the trail, amplifying the message that Trump is unfit to be president, because it's a kind of a lowly place, David, on the current trail, because my other colleagues won't say it, won't emphasize it. And if they had, we might have already beaten Donald Trump. We're going to have a lot more with Governor Chris Christie in just a moment. Stay with us. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back. We're talking with former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, current presidential candidate, Governor Christie, I just want to give our listeners a sense of the process of running for president. And you have sort of been through this three times. One time you you chose not to run, but you went through the decision-making process in in 2011 and decided you were not yet ready for the job. Then, obviously, you chose to run in 2015 and you noted how Donald Trump was able to sort of barrel through this crowded field – Does this race feel similar to 2015-16, or are you doing this differently than you did last time? It feels different, David, in in two ways. This has always been, even from the beginning, a somewhat smaller field. And as a result, it's been, I think, even though I was governor when I was running in 2015, and I'm obviously not anymore, it's been a bit easier to get attention than it was eight years ago. Secondly, I'm different. And... It is amazing how much having run once, I think, makes you a better candidate the second time. You know, you get to learn what's important and what isn't. You're not nearly as frantic. And I feel much better prepared to deal with what are the inevitable roller coaster aspects of a race for president of the United States. I feel a lot calmer and a lot more in control of both my own actions and my own words. And lastly, you know, just on a personal level, when I ran eight years ago, 
my wife, Mary Pat, was still working on Wall Street. She's still first lady of New Jersey. And we had two children still at home. And so her ability to be involved on a day-to-day basis was significantly less. And this time, she's no longer working on Wall Street. Our children are all out of the house. And so she's been with me every step of the way on this one. And that just makes the experience for me uh, much more steadying and just much more fun. And as a campaign operation, is this a smaller, more intimate campaign this time around for you, the Christie operation? Yeah, we're a lead machine, David. And we learned that from 2015 and 16 as well. In fact, just last night I was having dinner up here in New Hampshire with a group of the campaign staff and my campaign manager, Maria Camella. And we were actually going over the difference in terms of our payroll and the number of people we have on board and all the rest. And we made a conscious decision when we got in that we thought that we weren't the most efficient operation we could have been back in 2016. And it put financial pressure on the campaign that we don't feel this time. We've been pretty successful at raising money. But more importantly, if you look back on the third quarter, our burn rate, the rate that we spent money per day, was $15,000 a day compared to the DeSantis campaign, for instance, which was $150,000 a day. Right. You guys, it seems to me, are you're living off the land a little bit more, right? A lot of free media, uh, a little bit more like that John McCain, late stage John McCain strategy. Yes. And, and by the way, I think it's much more effective. You know, when I read the other day and that never back down, Ron DeSantis's affiliated super PAC had already spent $39 million on paid TV advertising. I thought to myself, towards what end? I mean, it's been extraordinarily ineffective and I think much less efficient than if Ron DeSantis had committed early on to broadly doing free media, which he, as you know, refused to do and was only going on Fox. If he had done it more broadly, I think his campaign would have been a much better one. Instead, they decided that they could go around the free media, just spend their money on TV and digital advertising, and that that would you know, move their candidate the way they wanted. In fact, it's done the exact opposite, along with a number of other factors. So, you know, I'm beginning to wonder, too, about the changing landscape of media and how difficult it is to reach people in a paid way, much more difficult than it was eight years ago. And so we made a conscious strategic decision that we wanted to preserve money, but also that we thought this was a more effective way to communicate. What is the best advice you would give to someone who is thinking about running for president in trying to explain to them what it is like to run for president so they could wrap their head around the experience as they're considering it? Look, it is not the least bit glamorous. That's the first thing you got to prepare yourself for. The idea of running for president is glamorous. The action of doing it is not. You know, my, my wife and I are waking up this morning in the residence inn by Marriott in Concord, New Hampshire. I've stayed there many times. Um, Right. So, you know, um, this is not, um, it's a a fine hotel, but not the lap of luxury. It is a lot of grinded out, smaller uh, type events. You're not going to be in the main as a presidential candidate, having glorious opportunities every day that you believe will be marking history. And if that's your perception of what it'll be, you're going to be disappointed. Secondly, 
it's relentless. There's always something you could and should be doing. There's always another fundraising call to make. There's always another political piece of support to pursue. If you're lucky, there's always another media interview to do. And so the idea of how tiring it is. You know, my day started yesterday, David, when the alarm went off at 4.15 a.m. after the debate the night before because I was doing morning television starting my first interview was at 5.30 Central Time. I, I did three of those. I then got on a plane, flew from Alabama to New Hampshire, did an event at 12.30 on a college campus, did my next event at 3.30 on another college campus, did my next event at 6 on a college campus, and then went out and had dinner with my staff and got back to my room at 10 o'clock last night. And that is a fairly typical type of day in an active presidential campaign. So be ready for the relentlessness. And if they said to you, is there joy in it? You would say what? Absolutely. For me, there is. Part of it is because the way I choose to do it, I emphasize doing town hall meetings, real town hall meetings, David, not the ones where your staff picks out the questions for you and you only take three or four questions and then you run out of there and avoid the press gaggle, which is typically what Governor Haley has done in her, in her time in this race. I do two-hour town hall meetings. I take every question. I gaggle with the network embeds typically afterwards that uh, cover us on a daily basis and then go out to dinner someplace and interact with people in that restaurant. I, I think all those experiences have the potential for real joy. I don't get real joy in them every day, but they have the potential for real joy if you do it that way. And I do think there's a bit of a wonder to it as well, especially when you start to get to this stage where you're down to the final strokes before people start to vote. You feel a different level of excitement and a different level of urgency. And I find joy in that as well. Governor Chris Christie, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate your insights and stay safe on the trail out there. David, thank you very much for the opportunity, and uh, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. That's it for this week's edition of the CNN Political Briefing. And we want to hear from you. Is there a question you'd like answered about this election cycle? Is there a guest you really want to hear from? Give us a call at 301-842-8338 or send us an email at cnnpoliticalbriefing at gmail.com. And you might just be featured on a future episode of the podcast. So don't forget to tell us your name, where you're from, how we can reach you, and if you give us permission to use the recording on the podcast. CNN Political Briefing is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Madeline Thompson. Our senior producer is Haley Thomas. Dan DeZula is our technical director, and Steve Lichtai is executive producer of CNN Audio. Support from Alex Manasseri, Robert Mathers, John Dianora, Lainey Steinhardt, Jameis Andrist, Nicole Pesseru, and Lisa Namara. And special thanks to Katie Hinman. We'll be back with a new episode on Friday, December 15th. Thanks so much for listening. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com briefing. netsuite.com briefing.